Welcome to the Brew Files for Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, it's part two of my chat with Andy Gamlin of the Society du Lambique about their decade-spanning mixed-cultured brewing project. We're joined by Derek Springer to discuss the fermentation and harvest day, aka beer distribution party. This is part two of what is currently a three-parter. I know I said it was a two-parter before, but... Oh. So if you have questions, get them in podcast at experimentalbrew.com. But first, a message from our sponsors. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. All right, welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for sticking around. And remember, if you interact with any of our sponsors, make sure you tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. Now, last episode of The Brew Files, we tackled sort of the beginnings of the Society du Lambic and how all this works. And, of course, today we want to capture even more of the magic because, as it turns out, mixed-cultured fermentation requires a lot of talking about so in order to keep the conversation going, I've brought back Andy. Andy, say hi to everybody. Hello. And we've got an extra guest just to give us even more information. Derek, say hi. Hi. It, it, Derek's been on, on the show before, right? That's right. It, that was, uh, uh, gosh, man, I think a thousand years ago. Uh, who knows? Time post-COVID is weird. Right. Okay, so just to set the stage again and recap for everybody what we talked about in the last episode, of course, you'll get more details if you go and listen to the audio, so go listen to the audio. But the Society de Lambique is a side club of the Society of Barley Engineers up in there in North County, San Diego, and the project has been going on for 20 years or 20 or more years, right? That's right. Every year, you guys pour 13 different mixed-cultured beers at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival. 
The Brew Day happens in March with 10 to 15 brewing teams, largely co-located, but also some remote. Everybody's working from a single recipe, which is approximately, what, 70% two-row, 30% unmalted wheat, and uh, aged hops that are aging currently in an attic. <laughs> you got it. Now, one thing I did check when I was going through the edit, we forgot to ask about chilling. I assume since you guys have so many different brews running at one time, this is all forced chilled and not like cool shippy type chilled or allowed to naturally chill, right? That's right. And, you know, one of the things that you can do at, at, when you're doing something on a large scale, uh, like a club is, well, we get, we'll get a, uh, we got a plate chiller that's, uh, that's real efficient. Basically we have a, a vessel that we can, a, a grant that we can put it into. And so basically we can load the hot liquor in, into the, uh, grant and then chill it. We have a pretty efficient operation because there's many things that are going through that chiller before they come into the barrels. As I think you just kind of hit it at, like all those batches come together and are blended together for fermentation. That's right. Pitch with a fresh culture of Saccharomyces cerevisiae to kickstart the ferment. Usually something clean, but really the strains just whatever you guys have on hand. Because uh, as we talked about in the episode, I think you used a Hefeweizen strain one time. Yeah, we just haven't found much difference in there. Mostly it's to, it's to kick the fermentation off and we're pitching you know, the yeast at the same time as it's coming in contact with uh, the, the bread that we also pitch and also with lactobacillus, which is in in-house culture. I do want to also throw another note out there because I heard from a couple of people. Yes, because of the fact that this is pitched with a starter culture and pitched with, you know, a culture of bacteria and other things that live in barrels, not done via a cool ship. Yes, this is a non-traditional lambic. That's the reason why I keep uh, talking about mixed cultured fermentation. But uh, I, I do want to add that we did import air from the uh, Seine Valley in uh, Belgium. So we we like to, to say that we have at least that part of uh, authenticity on our side. Canned air poured freshly into each barrel. That's right. I will say that the process is traditional to us. There you go. It's traditional society, society to Lambie. Society to Lambie. I mean, look, we've been doing it for 20 years, uh, over 20 years. So, I mean, I think that qualifies as a tradition. It qualifies as something. Anything else that we should uh, remind people about on the in the recap before we mix, move into fermentation? No, I think I just about covers it. Okay, so we've got the beer brewed. You guys just talked about the fact that you do a grant to do all your chilling. Everything gets blended together. It's time for fermentation. Now, in the last episode, Andy, you had talked about how you keep the house culture alive in the barrels. When you guys are doing this fresh pitch of sack and you're taking the, the beers together, is it just going straight into barrels with the culture that's already in the barrels? Or We'll keep the barrels wet so they're not, they're not all dried out. And so we'll basically have – we'll basically be pulling beer out of the – or lambic out of the barrels – and filling up kegs with them before we actually put the, you know, the, uh, the wort into those barrels for fermentation. And we'll even go to the point where we'll, um, we'll try to blend some of the, you know, the barrels contents together. We're trying to get things as equal as it can when they start out. So we'll blend some of the pieces together as well, just to make sure that everything's, everything's everywhere. Yeah. I w I would say these barrels are working, 24-7, 365 days a year in one way or another, just because we don't, we don't want to lose, you know, whatever, whatever special magic is going on in a specific barrel. We want to keep that going as long as possible. 
let's actually talk about the magic. The culture, okay, so we talk, you guys do a fresh pitch of Saccharomyces every year when you're doing this blend. There was some mention about, okay, Britannomyces is in here, Lactobacillus. Can you clue us in, like, where did the house culture start? Yeah, you, you know, I think when when some of us started first doing lambic cultures, the easiest thing for somebody to do that wants to make a lambic is to, you know, buy a culture that's a mixed culture. Like um, one of my favorites is uh, Y East Rosalair blend. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you you know if if you don't want to go to the trouble that we are to you know build this 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 uh, culture, then do something like that. It'll be a little bit simpler. But what we've done is we've um, augmented it. We've added added various different Brett strains. We've had we've added uh, um, other blends. We've uh, added um, drags from traditional lambics that we that we've that we've liked. And then you know whatever whatever's already in the barrels. I think at this point it's accurate to say if if someone asks us what is in it, the answer is yes. The answer is everything. And I was going to say about the adding things from Lambics that you like. I know in the past when I've done Lambic experiments like with MB Rains, her favorite thing to do was to take dregs from Cantillon and grow them up and add that into certain Lambics. You have to be careful because the Cantillon dregs uh, tend to overtake everything. Everything becomes very Cantillon-esque. So we've got a buildup of culture over time from lots of different sources, including commercial pitch blends and things coming out of bottles. Also, at the same time, we're not getting anything necessarily strictly San Diego, right? You're not getting anything from the air in San Diego. Maybe if something crawls into one of the barrels. Yeah, it's it's not intentional, I don't think. Uh, I think, and I don't know if Andy realizes this or not, but uh, there have been times in the past when I have had homegrown cultures where I've added a little San Diego spontaneity and I've brought those dregs to the brew day in the past, and that's been added in. So <laughs> there, there's something in there. There's, there's a little local culture. Good. Then that gives you guys even more grounds to claim your own tradition, right? Yeah, it's sort of taken on a life of its own now. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's our culture. It's morphed into what it is. And we, we go ahead and we try to keep it, keep it going, keep that culture going. And then we augment with, um, as I mentioned previously with Brett, um, additional Brett L and uh, some f- fresh sack uh, to kick it all off. I'm guessing because of this and because you guys aren't plating it out year over year, you're seeing different impacts over, over time, right? Things are, things are changing prominence year to year. You know, it, it, even within two different barrels, there'll be a difference in them. And even when you pull them from, when we do pull them from the barrels and people take them home and, you know, if they don't add fruit to them and they serve them up six months later, they'll be different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and yeah, so it's, it's, they're, they're continually changing. I, I think it would be accurate to say if two people drew from the same barrel and then took them to their homes and let them age the same amount of time and brought them back together, there would still be a, a significant difference that you could detect between the two of them. We actually had one a member of our club who took two, who filled two kegs up with a lambic, put them both underneath his house, and they sat there for um, a good six to nine months. 
And then when he brought them out and we, and we tasted them, they both tasted different. I don't know how to explain that one, but they changed differently. The easiest explanation is it's all wibbly wobbly lambicky stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's a real good description. Now, we've mentioned the barrels a couple of times here. To refresh people's memory, right now you guys are doing, uh, right now y'all are doing 350 gallons per year? They have about 350 gallons okay. per year. It varies a little bit from year to year. So how many barrels do you have actively fermenting at once? So we have three uh, oak barrels, mm -hmm. and then we have a big tote uh, that's a, a plastic tote that we can use for everything beyond what goes into those three those three barrels. Now, when you say tote, are you talking like one of those big white plastic cubes inside of a metal cage type tote? Or that's exactly it. That's exactly, that's exactly, it, exactly yeah. it. And so the strategy is that the oak barrels are always are always filled. We don't want to let it let the uh, house culture dry out. Uh, and we don't want to have to, you know, worry about trying to clean barrels and doing other things like that. Uh, so those, they always stay wet. And the tote, when it gets emptied, you know, it, it goes dry and then we clean it out, you know, before we, uh, before we put anything new into it. And then we add the house culture back into it along with everything else that we're adding. The three barrels. These have been used for multiple years, so I assume at this point in time, no real oak character coming from them. Where did you guys originally source those? There has been some changes over over time, but the, we have two barrels that have been, um, uh, they were red wine barrels. Those ones have been in use for maybe, I want to say five or six or maybe seven years, something like that. And then we just had another uh, wine barrel that came in that I believe was a, uh, a, a a white wine barrel, and that one is um, that one's just came in this last year, and so that one might have a little bit more oak character to it than than the other two. And would I be correct to assume that you guys are sourcing these from uh, Temecula wineries, or we source them from wherever you know? We have friends that know that know wineries. We actually have another couple that we're uh, sourcing from uh, Paso Robles, and so. You know, people have wine barrels that they're that they're that they're done with that they don't need anymore, and so we're able to to source them, and they're easy to to trade uh, homebrew for uh, for barrels. So that's that's how we source them. Right. Yeah. I, I think the great thing about homebrewers is that we we tend to make friends wherever we go, and uh, California being the wine rich state that it is, uh, we have members that just go up start chatting with folks that realize either they work for a winery or they know someone who does. And, hey, they're looking to get rid of some barrels. And, hey, we'll take it off your hands. And that's usually how the story goes. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Barrels are wonderful until suddenly you have to get rid of them. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, here, take. One other thing that we did with a barrel, which was quite unusual, is we were able to get a hold of some uh, Victory at Sea barrels. And for those for the, those of you that don't know what Victory at Sea is, it's a uh, – it's an, an imperial stout, a very good imperial stout that uh, Ballast Point makes. And we were able to get a hold of a bunch of those. And so we decided to, you know, try one of those with the Lambic and just see what happened. And it was a lot of fun. We put, we put the beer into that. First, we dumped out whatever was left in the barrel and proceeded to drink it because it was so good. 
And then we filled that barrel up with Lambic and let it go. And at the end of the day, when it came out, it had this sort of a, a peppery flavor to it, hmm. which was really not pepper. It was really more of a coffee flavor, but tasted more like, like, uh, like a pepper. And so one of the beers that one of the Lambics that we put on that year at the uh, Homebrew Festival, it was a Poblano Lambic. Uh, and what we did was we just played off of that pepper theme and added some poblano to it to get the uh, sort of the green, a little bit more of the green pepper flavor to it, and then serve that at the festival. And it was a it was a huge hit. Uh, yeah, I want to say that's probably the the most unique beer I've ever had, and not in the way of like you're just trying to be nice to someone. It was I've literally never had a beer like that before. It was unique and amazing. <laughs> I guess that's one of the things that I really like about this is that we can do things that really either haven't been done or haven't been widely experienced by people. And we can bring them out and showcase them to people and say, hey, what about this? I mean, this last festival, one of our members came up with a, uh, a banana lambic. And I'm, I've not even even had a banana. Usually I try to stay away from that the, that flavor in most beer styles. Um, but um, a banana lambic and it was quite it was quite interesting yeah i think what there's one commercial example i can think of was uh, chapeau has a uh, there's a chapeau banana don't really recommend it because it tastes mostly like a banana jelly rancher but i'm assuming not the case with the with the one that you guys were doing you had hinted at the fact okay you've had multiple barrels over the years besides leaving them wet to maintain the house culture and keep the wood swollen is there any other maintenance that you guys are doing on the barrels year to year well, the intention was not to do, not to really have to do any maintenance on them. So the barrels are, they're outside, they're on, you know, wood, wood planks under a pepper tree. We did have, um, I did have one issue with one of the barrels that sort of sprung a leak. And I was like, oh no, there's a, I was up, uh, up smelling this fruity flavor up near where the barrels were. And I was like, what is going on? And so I um, realized that there was a slow leak when I started investigating and found out where it was, it looked like one of the barrels had had a uh, um, pinhole in it that maybe originally didn't go all the way through. Maybe somebody stuck a nail, but it didn't go all the way through. So it wasn't really, didn't really puncture it. And somehow it had worked its way out. And so I, I was able to drive a, uh, a wooden spike into it to um, basically seal it back up. But really, other than that, that's the only thing that we've had to do on in, in terms of barrel maintenance. What drives the decision to retire a barrel? I think that, that sort of scared me a little bit about <laughs> springing a leak. And so I started thinking about, well, maybe it's time to bring something else in. I think the other reason to think about bringing other things in is because when maybe when you're brewing, maybe when you're doing this on a large scale, you're trying to make everything consistent. But when you're doing this on a smaller scale, um, diversity is actually your friend. And so, and the reason why is because we'll, we'll cover this in more detail when we get to blending, but it's nice to have things that are different because there's different things that you might want to do with different flavored beers, especially when it comes to blending. Okay. So we got the, the beer chilled, you're blending together. You take the beer into the barrels, you get the, uh, both the mixed culture in there and also the tote. Let's not forget the tote, the barrel and the tote, house culture in, Saccharomyces in. 
how does the fermentation proceed? You already said, hey, I got the barrels outside under a pepper tree. So I'm guessing we're going off of ambient temperatures. What does it look like when it's fermenting? So we have blow-off tubes on the barrels, and those go into um, they go into a, uh, a a canister that has star sand in it, uh, because star sand can sit out for very long periods of time and still be acidic, and th- something things won't grow into it. And so those uh, the fermentation will will kick off. It will go depending on how much sack is pitched, uh, how vigorous the fermentation is. Sometimes we will um, underfill the barrels a little bit and ferment some on on the outside uh, in another container. Start the and then fill basically top off the barrels with that mm-hmm. as the fermentation slows. So the fermentation is like any beer is more vigorous in the in the first week, and then after that you get a you kind of get a slow uh, percolation. So that's when you have to be most concerned about what's going to blow off. Then I'm guessing, because the last time we had talked, it sounded like one of your mantras was do as little as possible to open the barrels as you can. But during the early stages of fermentation, that's a little bit looser, right? Yeah. So, and, and this is even true, I think, with sort of classic brewing is that when you have when you have a vigorous fermentation, you have this driving CO2 that's pushing things outward. So you have this positive pressure that's pushing things outward. And so, you know, you're a lot safer about things getting in that you don't want to get in. And then as your fermentation slows, that's when you have to be more concerned about what gets in. I'm not so concerned about pepper droppings dropping in or something like that. My biggest concern is about oxygen. That is the thing that can really, you know, really ruin a lambic. And so unlike some other sour beers, you, you really don't want to have the, any acetic notes and those will come from prolonged contact with, with oxygen. And so that's what we're trying to be careful about. Because those barrels are outside, is the toad outside as well? Yes. So everything's outside. What's the fermentation temperature look like? Because I'm assuming all sorts of natural cycles because you're not doing anything to force it. Yeah. So the temperature will, it's like a big, it's like a big capacitor for those of you that are engineers. So the temperature will fluctuate. Maybe not so much on a on a daily basis, but more on a you know monthly basis where it'll go up you know as you go through the summertime and then come back down in the fall. I've heard some traditional brand, lambic brewers talk about wanting their fermentation process to go through a summer cycle so that you know they can make sure that you know the temperature kicks up a little bit they can make sure that everything that's going to happen within fermentation process happens before they um, go ahead and package it. One of the best American-made Lambic-style beers I've ever had, I don't actually know if they're still around anymore, in Jacksonville, Florida, or around there, uh, it's a place called Ardwolf. They just had some really amazing sour beer, and their whole production facility for their sour beer was just in an uninsulated warehouse in uh, the middle of the Jacksonville summer Florida heat. and Gosh, it must have been over 100 degrees in that warehouse, and just all of their sour beer was in there bubbling away, totally untemperature regulated. It was, you know, some of the best I've had. Ardwolf is still open in Jacksonville, Florida, and yeah, Jacksonville's pretty miserable during the summer. Yeah, having said that, I mean, we're not in that that kind of a 
environment and it is in the shade under a pepper tree. You know, we're sort of, this place is not coastal, but it's not inland either. We have that sort of the coastal corridor. And so it it's fairly temperate. How long does the fermentation take? I mean, like you said, okay, we got the primary. How long are you seeing active evolution? It will keep going. It, you know, it'll, it'll be percolating slowly. It'll just keep going for months and months and months. And what we'll typically do is go, you know, six, seven months, somewhere around there. And then we harvest it and we, we keg it and people take it home. And then, of course, it'll continue to condition and age and even ferment out over a longer period of time. But again, we're still seeing like the, the super active evolution of CO2, that primary fermentation. Is that still kind of on that traditional cycle of like two weeks, three weeks? Yeah, yeah. It, it, at the beginning, it looks more like a, a traditional beer where it'll ferment out. And then you'll sort of get this tail that will go for a longer period of time where you'll just see these slow, you know, slow bubbles and you'll know it's still doing its thing. Okay, you mentioned you get to a harvest date. What tells you when it's time to harvest, or is it strictly by calendar? We've been doing it by calendar. It, it seems to seems to be working out for us. From brew day in March, how long until harvest? So we go until, usually it's either late September or early October. It's usually October, I would say. So you really do get the full summer exposure. Yeah, I think that's the primary motivation is to let it work its way out through the summer, and then we come into the into the fall. And now's a good time to to harvest it. It's also uh, a little bit nicer for it to be cooler for people that are because we kind of have a uh, it's a celebration time. It's like a harvesting any uh, any of your crops or things like that that people would traditionally do, where it's a time of celebration. And so for us, it's a time of celebration. The main work is done on brewing day, and harvest day is a time for us to you know enjoy the fruits of our labor. Between that period of time of brew day to harvest day, it sounds like the only maintenance that you're doing at least is in that initial part where you're doing some topping up work you know, as the fermentation slows. It sounds like you're not topping up during the, the, the rest of fermentation. No, we'll make sure that the, um, uh, the blow off. So the, the, these blow off tubes are in going into this sanitizer and just to make sure that that doesn't dry out. You know, sometimes we need to top off a little bit in the sanitizer just to make sure that everything is, you know, the airlock is completed. Have you guys ever gotten to harvest date and had the beer not ready? Nope. You're batting a thousand. Batting a thousand, but I will tell you that doesn't make you less nervous because yeah. think about it. You're having a harvest day. Everyone's coming over and enjoy what you've done. What if you, you know, open them up? And my biggest fear is, is you know, we've made, you know, salad dressing and everything tastes like vinegar and <laughs> we don't have salad for people to put it on. But also you guys have an advantage of if you're doing your harvest date in that September, October frame and the beer is targeted for Southern California homebrewers festival, you still have like another half year to sort of get things corrected before, before it's really showtime to the public. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But I mean, just the disappointment that there, there's a lot of work that's put into to getting it to where it was. And so it would be a big disappointment, but that's not happened. And, and I think, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons why we do the things the way that we do, because it's working and it's working well. And I think one thing is that like, there's not a specific profile that we're looking for in the flavor of the final beer. If, you know, as long as it tastes good, 
we're happy, right? It, we're not expecting a beer to be really sour or really funky because we get everything in between. And so as long as it comes out interesting, then we're happy. That's a good point, Derek, because um, if we were a brand where everyone was expecting the same flavor out of it, then we would have to blend everything together to get consistency and make sure that everybody was getting the same thing. But, you know, we would actually prefer some diversity in the uh, Lambics that we end up with, because that gives us, you know, more interesting things that we can do with it and more options for blending. Right. More, more possibilities. Andy, I know you said the barrels and the toad are at your place. Do you have any other fermentation elves coming along to help you or, or is this a, a one man gig during that part of the year? Harvest day, there's a, you know, it's a big celebration. You know, there's, you know, 20, 30, 40 people that are there to help. So there's plenty of help there. Brewing day, there's, that's where most of the work is being done. And so, you know, 15, 20 people working at, on brewing day. So, but during the, in the, in the meantime, there's not really anything to do there other than just keep an eye on it and make sure things don't go dry. So yeah, n- nothing else required. Well, and make sure the barrels don't leak. <laughs> I think most importantly is the guard cat that does the lion's share, if you will, most of the year. That's a good point. There's actually two of them now, and you'll see them jump up on the uh, barrels and occasionally hang out there and then sometimes chase after, uh, you know, vermin and things like that that might be in the uh, the area. See, that just gives a whole new eye, well, a whole new picture to the idea of catty beer. (laughs) Well, you've heard of a lot of these brewer, uh, breweries that have cats in their bur- in their uh, warehouse to you know catch mice and things like that that might get into their grains. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a very long tradition going all the way back to Sumerian times, I suspect. Now we're at harvest day. We've gone through fermentation. Uh, the beer is hopefully happy. We're about to find out. What does the activity look like on harvest day? Because you got 350 gallons of beer to deal with. Derek, you want to you want to talk about Harvest Day? Yeah. So, uh, really, what happens is we get, gosh, I don't know, between twenty and thirty people. They show up, you know, just whatever empty kegs that they're willing to dedicate to sour beer, pretty much indefinitely, because that's once once you go sour, it, that's kind of a one way street. Basically, we start with Andy will take a growler full of sample out of each of the barrels. And kind of, you know, label them A, B, C, D, E, F. And then folks will show up. They'll do a sampling of each of the barrels. Uh, They'll figure out which one they like the best or which one they think they can do the most with. And then they will set their keg kind of below that barrel and wait in line to get it filled up. If you're feeling a little wild, you will try to get, you know, maybe half and half of one barrel or another, kind of do a hot blend. And then uh, once you have that keg, you go home and then decide what you want to do with it. Uh, In the meantime, usually folks are sharing uh, different sour beers. You know, we're chatting, we're hanging out, we're talking about what our plans are. uh, And, you know, we're just living the homebrewer dream. Wait, a homebrewer is drinking beer at a homebrew event while doing beer stuff? That never happens. I'm guessing what, the the people who were on the teams doing the brewing are the ones who then get to take kegs home? Yeah, so the way we do that is we, we, first of all, if you were were brewing, 
um, you can you can get credit for bringing some some back. But also, we're looking for people that will commit to bring something to the festival. We can make sure that you know this is being served out to people. Wait, so you're trying to avoid freeloaders who just want to have a, a home keg of lamb. We tell everybody that shows up, they'll get something. And so at least if you didn't participate in anything and you won't commit to anything, you'll still, you can still go home with a growler of Lambic just for showing up. Yeah. I mean, we're going to put you to work for sure. And so let's talk about that work. So everybody, everybody says, Hey, you know, give me barely or, or tote or this or that, or give me half and half. How are you guys actually doing the, the transfer out of the barrels? Because, I mean, that's a lot of work to move or a lot of beer. Maybe didn't uh, mention earlier is that the barrels are, they're, they're under a pepper tree, but their pepper tree is uh, raised up beyond a retainer wall. So they're actually raised up so we can actually gravity feed from the barrel into kegs that we're filling, which is kind of nice. And if, for anybody that's, you know, thinking about doing something like this, it's not a bad idea to figure out not only how you're going to fill the barrels, but how are you going to get the beer out of the barrels? And gravity is a, is, is a nice way to be able to do that. Um, so we'll either start a siphon or lately we've been um, just starting it by by pushing that on the headspace with CO2, then getting it started and then letting it go by gravity into the kegs. I'm assuming when you, you're saying, hey, we're going to do CO2, you got like a bung and that bung has a port for a racking cane or a tube or whatever it is you're going to use. And then also a way for you to inject CO2. That's exactly it. Right. And then that way you put a little CO2 up on top. Boom. Bob's your uncle. Beer starts flowing, which, yes, is very handy if you can run the siphon. Uh, and also a lot easier on the knees and the back. So we got beer moving around by gravity. Uh, at that point in time, since you guys have been so oxygen focused in terms of trying to avoid oxygen pickup, are you taking any special measures during that period to do anything to prevent any additional oxygen pickup? Or by that point in time, are you like, we're pretty well set? Well, what we do do is after we fill the kegs, then we, we purge the, uh, you know, the purge the top of the kegs uh, with CO2, just so there's no oxygen in the top. True. There could be some oxygen pickup from the transfer, uh, but it, it's, really uh, a, a small amount. And I think it's, it's never been an issue for us. The times that we've seen where we've had, you know, issues with uh, oxygen if, have been uh, where maybe you have a keg where you've lo- it's lost its seal and then it's sat there for months, you know, being exposed to oxygen. And those are the times it seems like we, we've seen issues and problems. So, these sort of short term, you pick up a little bit of oxygen here, doesn't seem to um, be a, a high enough on the threshold level that, that it makes any difference. When you guys are doing this harvest day, how long does that take to get that 350 gallons all spread out amongst the people who are taking some, even if it's just a gallon? Well, we're not in the biggest rush <laughs> because we're having a, we're having a, you know, a grand old time enjoying, enjoying the day. But I'd say we spend probably we spend probably a, maybe an, an hour or longer just enjoying the samples that were put out and other things that people brought, and then we then we go to business and say, okay, let's let's start filling the uh, the kegs up. We fill all the kegs up. Maybe that's maybe a, a couple hours later, everything's everything's filled and, and done, and then people probably stick around for another hour after that to enjoy the day. How dare they enjoy themselves when you guys are looking at the beers? and you're tasting those barrels, 
for you in particular, what are you looking for when you're saying that's the portion I want? What do you think, Derek? What are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's hard to answer unless you're standing right there, right? So what I'm looking for mostly is inspiration, is something interesting in a way that makes me think, you know, I can do something with this. And so sometimes I like something really funky. Sometimes I like something really sour. Something I, you know, sometimes I like something kind of in the middle. It really what it comes down to is in my mental map, what sour beer do I already have? Because I kind of have a pretty decent collection at this point. And what, what gaps am I looking to fill? And once I've kind of figured that part out, That'll help me decide, okay, I want some of this beer because, oh, it's really funky. Or, you know, I want some of this beer because it's got real big apricot notes or something like that, right? From there, I'll, I'll work out in my mind of like, okay, I feel like this would be really good on, you know, this kind of fruit. Or maybe I'll do something wild like Andy mentioned, like I'll add peppers to it. You really kind of have to, to, to wait to see what you're tasting and then decide what you can do with it. Andy, for you? Yeah. Uh, so for me, um, it, it's similar to what, what, what Derek says. I mean, uh, it depends on what I'm doing with it. A lot of times when you add, you know, fruit to a beer, depending on what fruit you're adding, it can become more, uh, more acidic. And so if I'm something, I'm going to be adding a fruit that I know is going to be very acidic, that, that, uh, I might look for something that's a little softer for a base. Um, if it's something that I was going to use, and drink it um, as a straight lambic. I would probably be looking for more funkiness and, you know, Brett character to it. Something really very interesting. I don't worry so much about maybe it seeming like it's not mature because I know that the beer is going to mature over a longer period of time. So sometimes we'll have a difference between the two between the barrels that we're that we're harvesting, where one of them will be drier than the other one. And I, I don't see that too much as a difference because I know that, that those things can work themselves out at, over a longer period of time. Well, and again, to the point about having time before you're in front of the public, I mean, again, if you're doing that, that harvest day in October, you have, until, I mean, you have seven, eight months before, before it's being poured to the public. Right. So there's a lot of time for additional changes and, yeah, <laughs> a couple of gravity points aren't going to matter so much. So one thing I will say is because we give people a choice about which you know barrel that they want to line their keg up to, it's never occurred where everybody's lined their keg up behind the same barrel. You know, so hmm. it pretty much divides equally. I mean, you, you won't there. You can't say, oh, that one is the better is clearly the better lambic. You, it, they're just different. Particularly if you have different flavor goals in mind then it makes perfect sense to say, well, no, I don't want that one. I want that one. Anybody out there done the, the sort of, I guess the Lambic equivalent of a suicide, you know, the old thing that we all used to do as teenagers at a soda fountain, one of everything. Oh yeah. It's got to be a little bit of a, a an interesting mix. Uh, I believe one of our members affectionately referred to that. Uh, I believe rainbow unicorn was, was that the title Andy? Yeah, he, he did that with uh, all the Lambics that were on tap at the festival and blended them all up together to make a super blend. And <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what that's like a fruit cocktail or something. I don't know what you would call that. I would call that a whole hell of a lot of flavor in a glass. 
I've got a funny little show clock in front of me and thinking about the, uh, you know, how much more we have to talk about. I know this is going to drive some people nuts, but it's going to be time for us to cut this a little short so that we can cover flavoring and all that sort of fun post-fermentation activity, including service at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival and other considerations that you guys have. So before we leave this show, anything else that we need to talk about in terms of fermentation, maintenance, the harvest day, or considerations people need to have when they're trying to do something like this? I know that's an awfully broad spectrum. Well, the only other thing I'll say about harvest day that we didn't really talk about is that there are some people that just don't get enough of this and have decided that even after they harvest day, they want to go home and do brew some more lambic. lambic. And so we'll end up um, distributing some of the uh, house culture as well to members that want to take it home and, and, and do things with it on their own. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, at that point in time, it's effectively free. So, you know, here, go take well, and actually, so to that point, you t- we, you talked about before that you have to keep the, the barrels wet so that they don't dry out and also to keep the house culture going. After people take 350-ish gallons of Lambic away from you or thereabouts, I mean, do you come back and brew something else to keep the barrels wet or is you retaining enough liquid? What are you doing there? So there's two ways that we've done this. One way is we actually will brew enough beer that day to uh to fill the barrels back up just the just the oak barrels that's one way the second way that we've done it is we've taken lambic from the tote and filled that filled the barrels up with the lambic from the tote so we're basically harvesting from the barrels then we fill the barrels up with the tote and then everything that's left in the tote we uh um, fill people's kegs up with that so there's sort of two options of, of how we do that. And that sort of depends on, you know, what the commitments are and whether or not we're in a pandemic. <laughs> Pandemics are funny that way. They change a lot of rules. Uh, the barrels themselves, forgot to ask, are those like yield sort of 50, 60 gallon type barrels? They're 53 gallon barrels, um, but you don't get 53 gallons out of them. You get something le- something just under 50 out of them. So uh, Derek, any other thoughts that people should know about the this whole part of the project, you know, from the brew day on up since we didn't have you for brew day? Yeah, the one thing in my mind about the fermentation process is that it's less delicate than people think that it can be. You really don't got to stress it out. You know, it's, it's kind of going to do what it's going to do, and it's probably going to turn out okay. So... As they say, garbage in, garbage out. So if if you can make sure the stuff going in is in good shape, I've found it's actually really hard to get something bad to come out. You know, the, the number one thing, like Andy mentioned, is oxygen. You know, make sure the oxygen stays out. But otherwise, if it comes out interesting, that's your goal, right? Because interesting means you can do something with it. So it sounds like good work, good culture, low oxygen. Right. <laughs> Those are your keys. And then, of course, as as we've sort of started to allude to, and we'll get into the next episode, even once you get things out the other side, there's plenty of room to play with flavorings to either adjust, correct, or emphasize other characteristics of the beer that you actually end up with, which, again, is part of the reason why it's good to have a diversity of different results. Boys and girls, my fellow brewers, Hold on to your shorts, because we're going to have a part three coming up in two weeks.
all the Lambic all the time. So stay tuned, and we will bring Derek and Andy back. And at that point in time, we will cover blending, flavoring, service, and just how you keep something like this going. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this second-part exploration of how the Société du Lambique runs their mixed-cultured fermentation project. In the next episode, we'll break down their flavoring, packaging, and serving processes, as well as how do they keep the madness going. Need something clarified? Send in a question. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, ingredients, techniques, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is TBD. You got an idea for a good charity? Send it in. Until next time, remember the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. The AHA wants to remind you that the Great American Beer Festival returns to Denver this October 6th through 8th. And if you want pre-sale access to the hottest beer festival in the U.S., you're going to need to be an AHA member. June 28th is the deadline to join the American Homebrewers Association to receive a pre-sale code, a $10 discount on all general session tickets, access to the members-only Saturday afternoon tickets, and first access to paired tickets. Don't delay. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to get access to the hottest beer fest in the U.S.